Father, we come to You at this time of the year, a special time of the year when we get to sing songs that especially remind us of the incredible gift You have given us. Lord, we ask that today You would stir our hearts in a way like never before. Father, this is a familiar story, the story of the Nativity. Father, but yet, it is the most powerful and important story for us to focus on today. Lord, it is life-changing, and I pray that You would speak to our hearts this morning, that Your Spirit would guide us into truth this morning, that Jesus would be lifted up, and that we would be led to adore Jesus this morning. Father, I ask this because of Jesus and all that He's done for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Back in 2010, Leah and I moved to Michigan, Berrien Springs, Michigan, where some of you know that we attended Andrews University. Now, Michigan's a bit different than California. Those of you who have been there may know this, that the roads there aren't quite like the roads we have in California. Maybe they're a little bit like the roads we have in Atascadero. But the roads there aren't, uh, oftentimes they don't have lines on them. Oftentimes they're just little roads weaving here and there. And you'll be driving along and supposedly Google Maps is taking you to the, your destination, but you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. You're driving past houses that have lots of land around them, something we don't have the privilege of in most of California. Uh, they're, the, the little roads often aren't well maintained because they have severe winters in Michigan and so the water freezes and there's cracks in the roads. But there was one road that was right near the college that was a very nice road. As we would go out on walks, I loved to walk on that road because it was a nice wide road. It had bright white lines on the side, bright yellow, double yellow line in the middle. It had a nice shoulder. I said, this road is really nice for this little town of Berrien Springs. I wonder why it's here. I really had no idea, but there was something interesting. If you went down that road and you got to the end of it, it dead-ended at this big gate. And then there was this driveway that went off, and then you saw one little guest house there, and then you couldn't really see what was beyond that. I really didn't know what was there until one day I was out with some friends walking. And as we were walking along, they said, you know who lives at the end of this road, right? I said, no, who lives here? We're in Berrien Springs, this tiny town. I have no idea who would live here. He said, Muhammad Ali lives at the end of this road. And that gate there leads to the guest house. And beyond that, where he doesn't want you to see, right where the river bends, is his mansion. It's a famous place, I guess, that it used to be some mobsters from Chicago had owned it before Muhammad Ali had owned it. But here Muhammad Ali lived in this place. And I didn't realize that there was somebody that the world saw as really great. And so they had built this nice road. Here I thought it was there for me to walk on, but apparently not. Now there's something interesting as we look in Matthew chapter 2 and we see the story of the wise men coming to look for Jesus. Go with me to Matthew chapter 2. The wise men show up in Jerusalem and when they ask a question of those in Jerusalem All of Jerusalem is troubled. Let's start in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, 
saying, Where is he who is born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Where is the one who is born as King? We saw the star in the sky, and we've come on a long journey to worship him. Now here Jerusalem is. They have been looking for the Messiah. They have been hoping for the Messiah. And here come these men on a long journey. Maybe they look dusty by this point. They look tired from their long journey. We don't know the whole story. We don't even know if there were three of them like the nativity always seems to show. But we know that these wise men had come from the east to find the king who was born. But look at the response. In verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was troubled. Now, it might be understandable for King Herod to be troubled, right? Because King Herod was king, and to hear that another king had been born would be a troubling thing to the kings of that day. They would assume that, oh no, this is a usurper who they're going to come and they're going to try to put him on the throne in place of me. It's understandable that Herod was upset by this news. But then it goes on to say this, it says, Herod was uh, troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why was all of Jerusalem troubled? They'd been looking for the Messiah. They'd been hoping that the Messiah was coming. They had been longing for this for thousands of years. Ever since the very first gospel promise had been given in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, they'd been looking for the promised Messiah. And now, when news that there was a king who had been born was told to them, they're troubled. That shouldn't be the response. But I wonder if it might be because they realized that they had failed in their duty. You see, in Isaiah chapter 40, we learn that God's people were told to do something special in preparation for the Messiah. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 40. It starts off in something that's a real switch for the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is divided into about three different sections. Chapter 1 to chapter 36 are really rebuking the sins of Israel. And then chapter 36 to 39 are more historical stories. And then you get into chapter 39, and the whole tone of the rest of Isaiah changes until chapter 66. It's a book that now is focused on Jesus. It's focused on promises of the, the coming servant. It's, it's focused on promises of hope for the children of Israel and all that God was going to do for them, what he was going to restore to them as his people. So Isaiah chapter 40 starts off appropriately saying, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Your time of paying the penalty for your sins has come to an end. Comfort, comfort my people. Then it goes on to say this, and you might recognize this from Matthew chapter 3. Verse 3 continues, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here is this prophecy in Isaiah that says, comfort is coming for my people. So 
hear this voice in the wilderness crying out saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. Level the hills out. Fill in the valleys. Make a highway for the King to come. Now they would actually do this in oriental times when somebody would come as a king to visit a kingdom and, or parts of the kingdom that he hadn't been to in a while. The roads were all dirt roads. They were worse than the roads in Michigan. And so when they knew that the king was coming to town, it's kind of like when you know that the corporate boss is coming to your work and you go through all the corners and you dust everything out to make sure that it's all trim and ready to go. Well, they did this with the roads. They would go along the road. They would fill in all of the valleys in the road, all of the potholes, and they would level all the hills out. They would make this straight highway for the king to come, kind of like that highway in Berrien Springs, Michigan that leads to Muhammad Ali's house, I imagine. Because they wanted to make it a smooth pathway so that the king had easy access to his people so that he could travel smoothly through the countryside. It was also important because you didn't want the king to get bogged down on his way because then he could be attacked by others. You wanted him to have a, a, a quick thoroughfare to travel on. This was what was expected of those who prepared for the Messiah, of those who prepared for the king. And so this is why in Matthew chapter 3, when they come to John asking, who are you? He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. And he goes on to quote this prophecy from Isaiah. He recognized that that was his task. His task was to prepare the way for Jesus, for the King to come, to make a smooth pathway, not on dirt roads, but in hearts through a repentance through accepting the gospel the good news that jesus was coming so here we have this prophecy in isaiah clearly pointing to that time when a way would be prepared for jesus and friends i think we're living in a time when jesus is wanting a way to be prepared for him again he's wanting to come back to this planet and he's looking for hearts that are open to receive him to open to receive the holy spirit open to be made a smooth path for the King of Kings. Verse 5, as it said in Isaiah 40, said, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now this is an astounding thing, because you know the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 3, where actually it was in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, where Moses prays that God would show him his glory. To Show me your glory. And God showed up and He said, I can't show you all of my glory, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will let my goodness pass before you and I'll declare my name. And so He declared His name, the the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, abounding in loving kindness. He declared that He was the great I Am. In Hebrew, that the term is Yahweh or some older uh, understandings of that was Jehovah. The interesting thing is that here in Isaiah chapter 40, when you go back to verse 5, it says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And earlier in verse 3 when it said, prepare the way of the Lord. You'll notice in your English translation, do you see how it has an L-O-R-D, but the O-R-D are capitalized? Do you see that there in your Bible? Now there's in, in Hebrew, there's a, a word for Lord, and then there's the word Yahweh, which 
the Hebrews did not believe it was okay to translate. And so rather than putting Yahweh, which is the name of God there, they put Lord. So here, rather than it saying, prepare the way of the Lord, it should be saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. The I am. Prepare for the I am to come. Make straight in the desert a a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill laid low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. This is an astounding thing because throughout the history of Israel, not everybody got to see the glory of Yahweh. They got to see it from a distance on Mount Sinai or maybe uh, in different occasions when they saw the pillar of cloud above the tabernacle. But here it's saying that all flesh would get to see the glory of the Lord. And in the New Testament, it tells us that, that this is somewhat of an impossible task. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15 We're going to start halfway through the verse. It's halfway through the thought. but The last part is the most important part for what we're talking about here. It says, He who is the blessed and only potentate, that's sovereign or or the one with authority, the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. Only God has immortality, Paul says, writing to Timothy. Dwelling in what? Unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. It says God is the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. He's the all-powerful one. He has all authority, but you can't approach Him. You can't see Him as a human being and live. And yet Isaiah says that the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed so that all flesh can see it. How is this possible? How can this ever take place? When you think about it, the Creator of the universe, how could He ever really reveal Himself to creatures? I don't know how many of you are good at drawing stick figures, but let's say I was really good at drawing things. Let's say I could draw what's on the cover of this book. I'm not good at drawing at all, not even stick figures. But let's say I could draw a two-dimensional figure and I... I was able to draw something like this, and then I was able to breathe life into my drawing like God breathed life into humankind. And and that two-dimensional figure was able to come to life on the page, and it could move around on this two-dimensional surface, but it couldn't enter into my three-dimensional world. How would I ever really show myself to this two-dimensional figure that I had drawn on a piece of paper? I'm the creator. How could I ever really show up in a meaningful way that that they would grasp, that they would understand? And this is the the problem that God grapples with because sometimes we think if we just went off into this part of the universe, that there we could find God and we could see all of God that there is to be seen. But God is the creator of the universe. How are we ever going to go to a place and see God in totality? God is the creator. He's awesome. He's powerful. And he's far beyond his creation. And so Timothy, or Paul writing to Timothy says, he dwells in unapproachable light. He's so powerful. He's so big that you can't even get close to him. It's not even possible. But in the book of John, there's something phenomenal in John chapter 1. 
it says something similar about not being able to see God. John chapter 1 and verse 18. Go there with me. John chapter 1 and verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. It's not possible for a mortal human being to, to gaze upon God in all of His glory. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Now there's something really important here that we pause to look at. When it says only begotten Son, the word there in Greek is monogenes. And that word does not refer to a child being born. Mono is, you probably recognize that as meaning only. And genis is referring to unique one. The only unique one. Meaning that rather than translating this as the only begotten, the word begotten really shouldn't be there. It should say, no one has seen God at any time. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. It's not saying that this Son had a beginning point. But it's simply saying that He is the unique Son of the Father. Does that make sense? Okay, if it didn't make sense, ask me about it later. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared, He has revealed Him to us. But it gets even better than that. Go to John chapter 1 and verse 1. Just skip down to the, or up to the beginning of this chapter. Here it begins to describe how this takes place. It says that Jesus, the Son of God, has revealed God to us. John chapter 1 and verse 1 it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. So you see how it says in the beginning was the word. Not in the beginning the word began, but the word was always there from the very beginning. The word has always been. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This is amazing. The Word was God. He was with God and He was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3, all things were made through Him and without Him nothing was made that was made. Friends, this is telling us that Jesus, who later goes on to describe who is the Word, is the Creator of all things and that Jesus is God in human flesh. And so when it says that the glory of the Lord would be revealed to all flesh, it's telling us that Jesus would be revealed to all flesh when John the Baptist came preaching and when the people responded to make a smooth pathway for the King to arrive. That the King would arrive. That God Himself would reveal His glory by coming to this little planet. And this is what Jesus had actually prayed for. If you go to John chapter 17 and verse 5, Jesus in His high priestly prayer where He's praying for the disciples and He's praying for them to be able to know God. In verse 5, He says something phenomenal. Verse 5, He says, And now, O Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Jesus says, I have had the same glory with You before the world ever was. Glorify Me now and show my disciples that glory. He's praying for his disciples to see that incredible glory that he had throughout eternity with the Father. In John 
chapter 8, the, the Pharisees clearly understood what Jesus was saying as he walked on earth. Because there is a terrible heresy in parts of supposed Christianity that tell us that Jesus is not God, that he is not fully divine. Friends, the Bible is very clear that that is a heresy of Antichrist, that that is something that we need to steer clear of, that we need to run from. If anybody tries to tell you that Jesus is not God in human flesh, he's calling Jesus a liar. Just look at what Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now you might think, wait a second, he didn't say I'm God there, did he? Did he say that? Well, if you read it in the Greek, you would see how clearly he really is saying that. Because the word I am there is ego eimi, which was used in the Old Testament when God showed up and said, I am. Jesus is saying before Abraham was, I am. You can call me Yahweh. That holy name that Jews didn't even want to pronounce. That name, Jesus says, you could apply it to me. And when the Jews heard this, look at what they do in verse 59. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Jesus didn't say, wait a second, wait a second. I, I wasn't trying to say I'm God. Jesus instead realizes that he must escape this situation because they are going to stone him for claiming to be God in human flesh. Jesus was fully God. Jesus is fully God. Go back with me to Isaiah chapter 40. So here we see in verse 5, it says, The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then it continues. I hadn't even seen the connection before and seen how this applied to Jesus as I've read the rest of this chapter before, but it's so beautiful as we dive into this chapter. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry out? All flesh is grass and all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. It says, flesh, human flesh is transient it's passing it it doesn't last long it's why we have funerals and memorial services we know that life is so fragile then it goes on to say this the grass withers and the flowers fade because the breath of the lord blows upon it surely the people are grass the grass withers the flowers fades but the word of our god stands forever in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and nothing that came into being came into being except that which came into being through Him. Isn't it powerful to think of this Creator God, the God of the universe, that He has stooped to reveal Himself to us in such a practical, real, and beautiful way? I love how it describes it in manuscript. 77, 1899, it says, What speech is to thought, so Christ is to the invisible Father. He is the manifestation of the Father and is called the Word of God. He made known in His words His character, His power, and majesty, the nature and attributes of God. Jesus 
was the thoughts of God made audible. That's what language does for us. That's why today we hear the, the Japanese being spoken. If, if there were those of us here that understood Japanese, it would be important that thoughts be translated into Japanese. Otherwise, what I would be saying right now would mean nothing to you. It's important that you have the right words in order to understand the thoughts of the mind. Here in John chapter 1 when it says, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus came so that He could describe who God was to us. So that He could reveal God's character in human flesh to us. And He was God's thoughts made audible. It was so that we could understand what the thoughts of God were. Otherwise, we might fear God. We might think that He was a tyrant. We might wonder why if God's all-powerful, why do we see suffering in this world? Why do we see the things that are going on in this world? We might wonder if God really loved us, if He really cared about us. But because we've seen God in Jesus, we can have confidence in who that omnipotent God of the universe is. We continue on in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and His arms shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. Now this is something that Jesus has promised to us in the future. In Revelation chapter 22, He said, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. He's coming back with a reward, and He's coming to rule this planet. Then it goes on to say this, something that Jesus has already accomplished and will continue to accomplish. Verse 11, He will feed His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with His arm and carry them in His bosom and gently Lead those who are with young. What a tender, merciful, omnipotent King of Kings you have. Jesus, who in John 10.11 said, I am the Good Shepherd. He wants to guide you and protect you. He wants to, as the psalmist said, lead you in paths of righteousness for His namesake. He wants to lead you to green pastures, to lead you beside the still waters. He wants to guide and bless your life. That's who this King, this Savior is who was born in Bethlehem. Verse 12. Now it's getting into the grandeur of who Jesus is. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? That's a good question. I don't know how many of you have gone over the ocean lately, but can you imagine a being who could take the ocean or the 22 oceans of this world and put it in the hollow of His hand? Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? To to take all the oceans of the world and all the water on this planet and to to just put it in the hollow of His hand and say, okay, yeah, I see. That's the water. Very nice. Who measured heaven with a span? If you looked up the stars, you may be able to measure it. But try to go out there and actually measure it with your uh, hand span and you're going to be out there a really long time. And calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Imagine taking Mount Everest and putting it in a balance so that you could figure out how heavy Mount Everest was, let alone all the dust of the planet. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as His Counselor has taught Him? 
With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him in the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. All that you watch on the news, all that politics that's going on, all the nations and powerful kingdoms of this planet, God says it's just like a drop in the bucket. Just a really small thing. And are counted as a small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. And Lebanon, which is full of trees, is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. It says you can't really offer enough sacrifices to appease this all-powerful God. Don't think that your sacrifices are what's going to merit salvation for you. All nations before him are as nothing. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Here it's mocking those who would try to set up some sort of image in order to worship God. But what tree could ever represent the Creator God Himself? How could we ever have an image of God? Or can we? Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that, in fact, we do have an image. Now, if you're in Isaiah chapter 40, keep your finger there. But go, go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 starts off like this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, so throughout the Bible, God's been speaking through great prophets, through Moses, through all of these prophets in various ways throughout the Old Testament. But it says, in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. This Jesus was the one who made all of the planets out there in the universe. Apparently there are more inhabited planets out there. And Jesus made them. Verse 3, "...who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person." You see, Jesus Himself is the brightness of the glory of the Father that we can't see in human flesh, but yet we can see because Jesus is revealing it to us. The express image of His person. Jesus reveals exactly who the Father is to us. If the Father were to have come down and live in human flesh and to walk among us, He would have done exactly the same things that Jesus did. Have you ever thought about that before? Sometimes we have this dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament or the God the Father as being some tyrant while we have Jesus as being our loving and merciful Savior. So we need to run to Jesus so that that tyrant will accept us. But that's not the picture that we have at all in the Bible. We have a picture of a God of love who loves you so much that He was willing to send His own Son to live among us and reveal His loving character to you and I. The express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power when He had by Himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The reason we don't make images to worship is because Jesus is our image to worship. Jesus alone deserves our adoration. This Christmas, I pray for you and I pray 
for all of this world to adore Jesus like never before. If only that could happen, can you imagine the peace that would break out on our planet? If we truly adored Jesus for all that He's worth, all of His beauty, all of His love, all of the peace that He longs to bring. If only we would adore Jesus this Christmas. Going back to chapter 40 of Isaiah, verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. When you're flying along at 38,000 feet, people really do look a lot like grasshoppers, actually even smaller than that. But here He says He's the one who sits above the earth and He looks down the one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. You don't have to worry about those politicians that you're fearful of. He can bring the princes to nothing. You don't have to fear either side, whichever side you might lean towards. Don't look to princes. Don't look to politicians to solve the problems on this planet. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. When He will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. We may be worried about who's going to choose the next Supreme Court justices. And we have a duty to fulfill the political... uh, to, to do our best to vote in a way that honors Jesus. But... We don't need to fear (laughs) because judges aren't going to last, but there is a judge who will last. He's the king of kings, and he was born in a manger. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Back in verse, down in verse 25, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. I love this part. And see who has created all these things. Go out on a dark, clear, starry night and look up at the heavens, Isaiah writes, and look on high and say, who has created all of these things? Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name, by the greatness of His might and the strength of His power. Not one is missing. So I had to do a little research here and look at the universe and say, okay, how many stars do scientists estimate today that we have in the universe? Well, they really don't know. But they estimate that, I think it's like 10 trillion galaxies are out there. And each of those, they they say, well, the Milky Way is a small average galaxy of 100 billion stars. So let's just say 100 billion, basically the numbers they come up with, is about 10 to the 24th power stars in the known universe. And you know that number is always growing and expanding. Maybe you've heard about the Hubble, Deep Teles- the Hubble Telescope and how it takes images of different parts of space. It's been able to bring back some of the clearest, most beautiful pictures that we've ever seen of the universe before. Well, Back in the 1990s, they decided that they were going to do something they pointed the Hubble telescope at what they thought would be the best part of space to do this because it was the darkest part as far as the near range of the telescope. There weren't any bright stars around. It was what looked like a fairly empty part of the sky. They aimed the Hubble telescope at it for 10 days. 
And little by little, the images began to come back. And they put together this composite image called the Hubble Deep Field uh, Picture. And they put together all these pictures. And, and you may not be able to see it from your seat, but if you go close to this picture and you look at each of the dots... Go back to that picture, please. If, if you go, Okay. Anyway, if you were to go and look at that picture, and each of those dots is not just a star there. It may not be clear from where you're sitting, but those aren't stars. Those are galaxies. Yeah, it did the same thing to me when I first saw that. They, they aimed the telescope at what they thought was an empty part of space, and, and they looked, and there were all of these thousands and thousands and thousands of galaxies out there. And, and what does it say here? He, he calls them all by name. He, he holds them in place. I, uh, Psalm chapter 33 says, the starry host came by the breath of His mouth. That is how powerful Jesus is. Your King is able to hold all of those billions and billions and billions of stars in place. Isn't that incredible? It's an amazing thing to realize how big God is. Then it also helps us to realize something about how small we are. So there was a, another uh, probe, or I'm not sure what you'd call it, called the Voyager. The first Voyager that was sent out, you might remember it, it was sent out and they were just sending it to, to leave our solar system. And as it was flying out, it was taking different pictures. And as it neared the edge of our solar system, they commissioned it to take pictures of each part of our, of our solar system. And it was called the family portrait. So before they left our solar system, they wanted to get some good pictures of the planets in our solar system. And so they began to take pictures of the different planets. And then they looked back and they took a picture of planet Earth from 4 billion miles away. That's it. Maybe go to the next slide and it'll be a little easier to see. We'll blow it up a little bit more. It was almost providential how from the camera lens there was this beam of light that was going right across. And right there, go back to that picture. Right there in the middle of that beam, you see that tiny little dot smaller than one pixel on a picture was planet Earth, this blue little dot. And the astronaut, Carl Sagan, who's also an author, said this about that picture. He said, we succeeded in taking that picture. If you look at it, you see a dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives. The aggregate of all our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor, explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat suspended, a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Friends, the God of the universe is really, 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 really big. And we are really, really, really small. But that's the miracle of Christmas. 
Because that God of the universe, that creator, the one who breathes out stars, God himself said, I see a planet down there and I see a planet that is in desperate need of a revelation that I'm a loving God. They're rebelling against me because they don't understand who I am. They don't think that I'm a loving God. And I need to reveal to them my loving character. So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll come and I'll be born. And I'll, I won't come as some king to, to force my authority and to control the world, but I'll come as a, a helpless baby laid in a manger. I'll live a humble life of a peasant. And I'll love people radically so that they can see that that is what I live for. That that's the principles by which I govern this massive universe. That that is who I am at my very core. That, my friends, is what Jesus has come to do. In Colossians chapter 1, it describes who Jesus really is. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. By the way, when it said firstborn, that's the originator of creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible. All those angels that showed up to sing, They were created by that baby born in a manger. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or power, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him part of the fullness should dwell. No. What does it say? It pleased the Father that in Him the fullness should dwell. Friends, in Jesus, all the fullness of divinity, that God who breathes out stars, that God who created the universe, in that physical baby born in a manger, all the fullness of deity dwell. Oh, friends, let's adore Jesus this Christmas. He's worthy of all of our adoration. And when we recognize who He is and that He's revealing the loving character of Jesus, it will change everything in our life. In the book, The Doctrine of Christ, by an author, W.W. Prescott, he writes this, We never shall have any proper conception of what true dignity is until we understand that love is upon the throne of the universe. He that sits upon the throne came into the world and washed the feet of those Galilean fishermen that believers might be blissfully aware that love is wedded to omnipotence. Friends, love is on the throne. Your God is a loving God and He cares so much about you that He went to a tiny dust spot way off in a corner of the universe. And He said, I'm going to be born and I'm going to live and I'm going to reveal my loving character so that they could hopefully fall in love with me too. I don't know about you, but I want to adore a God like that. If you want to adore Jesus this Christmas, I want to invite you to stand and sing hymn number 132 with us this morning. Hymn number 132, 
O come, all ye faithful.